Welcome to the I'm a Health Visitor podcast. We want to help health visitors stay up to date, so we're here to give evidence-based information and insight into relevant practice issues. We're currently supported by the CPHVA Education Development Trust, McQueen Bursary. Hello. Hi, Jenny. Hello, Amy. How are you, my lovely? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, well, we, we've You're been in password day, hell today, haven't we? I feel yeah. like I've had to change all of my email passwords about three times. <laughs> um, my short-term memory has finally been shot to pieces. <laughs> oh, 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 but enough of that. We're, we're talking about jaundice today, aren't we? We are. We're going to talk about jaundice. Which is always an interesting um, one. I was surprised we've not done an episode on this already, but apparently not. Yeah, it so. kind of feels like it's a Obvious very choice. us topic, doesn't it? Does. It? Yeah. it feels like it um, It should have been there covered. Yeah. Um, I but think we'll it's that it thing out. where we, this could be the first of a few episodes on jaundice because there is quite a lot going oh, on, isn't there? It's always the way, isn't it? I, I literally say yeah. this every single week, but every time you start looking into something, even if you think this is going to be a quick one or, or I think I've got a good understanding of this before you start... When you actually start reading for it, you realise you don't actually know very much about it at all. Um, but anyway, yeah. we're going to try and stick to the high-level stuff in terms of um, what is relevant for health visitors. So what we're not going to really cover here particularly is um, much around medical management, like phototherapy and things like that, um, other than yeah. just a brief head nod at it in terms of the experience for the family. But exactly the medical side of it we leave with the medics and we'll focus on the bit that is our domain really yeah and it's the bit that I think parents are going to be needing to maybe talk through Mm -hmm. to understand more um as and when we we do see them and things as well isn't it I that make no sense at all did it (laughs) sorry that's fine yeah, I think um, you're right. It's the bit that that parents are bothered about. So, okay, yeah. what is jaundice then as a definition? Because there's two different types, isn't there? Well, there's three, three types of jaundice, really. Um, okay. The confusing thing is, as you look through um, research, is that they the name changes a bit, and you'll see why when we talk about them. Yeah. So um, there is... The, it's almost like going by friends episodes you know the one the one that's often <laughs> called physiological jaundice yes for which they're sort of erring away from calling it physiological jaundice these days because there sometimes isn't a physiological cause yeah um there sometimes is other stuff that needs going on yes. and um this is the one that get pops up around about 48 72 hours after baby arrives yeah. Um and it causes the the blood the red blood cell breakdown. Um and the absorption of the bilirubin and the um sort of yeah they're absolutely thriving. They look they're very normal. Um yeah, they lose a little bit of weight but clinically they're very well. They're feeding. Everything seems to be okay. Um and this is the one where we kind of yeah monitor it. It peaks around about 3 to 5 days. Um, and so often is we the one that parents tell us about at the new birth visit mm-hmm. when we're looking at a very pink, very healthy looking baby. Um, and obviously we'll come on to it. But I mean, when I say pink, I'm meaning also the gums might look pink. The, mm-hmm. wh- the, eye- the whites of the eyes are nice and white. Um, fingernails are kind of normal colour um, because obviously not all mm-hmm. babies are pink in the first place. Yeah, we're going to talk about that with assessment, aren't we? Yeah. Um, the next one is, um, it used to be called um, like breastfeeding associated jaundice. Yeah. But it's actually now often being called um, sort of starvation jaundice. Insufficient or, intake um, jaundice. Insufficient intake yeah. jaundice. Um, because it's not just um breastfed babies who can get it um although it is far less common in formula fed because obviously they're taking these bigger volumes quicker mm-hmm. um but this one also comes up around about 48 72 hours after birth yeah the peak of it is also three to five days mm-hmm. however the this baby could not look more different 
to a baby with the the sort of the physiological, physiological jaundice. jaundice right and um, this is a baby who's going to be lethargic and fussing yeah um it's going to look like its skin's two sizes too big yeah you know, it's it's got that really evident weight loss very poor urine output um possibly even the sort of the brick dust nappies that we see sometimes yeah um, yeah. And just obvious signs of dehydration. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, we'll talk through further about each of these as we go on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the one where it's kind of That's a the medical one emergency. Need some more... These are the guys yeah. who've who've been back into hospital and mm. um and have possibly had to have quite a bit more treatment. Yeah. And then the third type is the kind of more prolonged one, yeah? Yeah, so it's the breast milk jaundice. And this yeah. is an interesting one in that it comes on late, much later, um, five to ten days, mm-hmm. typically peaking at around about day 15. But it can sometimes go on for until sort of three months old, I think, is like the yeah. upper limit. Yeah. Um, And this one is a much slower build. Um, And it still actually causes unknown. They don't no. know yeah. what is happening. Um, and it's a really interesting one because it is that thing where you start to look at, well, why are the babies getting jaundice? Mm. Um, it's that thing where you kind of consider it, think about it from the point of view of with breastfeeding being the the biological normal. Mm-hmm. You, you do start to wonder and there is more research coming through about well actually is there a reason why this is occurring yeah is there like is an there evolved adaptive pre- mechanism yeah yeah um, there you know protective factors around this mm. um you know it's like it's it's a bill you know bill rubin is an antioxidant and yes. um, and there is thought to be some protective factors um around the sort of relatively hyper hyper oxygen uh, yeah i will get through this word hyper oxygenic yes. environment yeah. i'm sure i maybe put an extra oxygenic e in is it <laughs> i don't know o- oxygenic yes oxygen. i did put an extra e in there didn't oxygen I? generic i don't know no o- oxygenic Okay, I, just, I broke the word up in the wrong place. <laughs> we really are going to do like a, like a a blooper reel of us attempting to pronounce these medical terms, honestly. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I read about that as well. It's very interesting, isn't it? That it might actually serve as some kind of evolutionary purpose or, yeah. you know, health related. Which, which makes sense because... Completely, completely. It's got to come and from I mean, somewhere. And these are the guys who we often end up, they're, they're trotting back and forth for to... Yeah. Um, prolonged jaundice clinics yeah and just constantly being told yeah no they're all right actually and yeah yeah, they're all yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um and then obviously um, the type of jaundice that we're not covering really here is the kind of jaundice that appears later due to an underlying kind of cause yeah so we're we're narrowing down to these are the the jaundices that we see and treat and don't need to worry about um, the ones that appear in the first seven days of really, life yeah to really do justice to conditions like biliary atresia mm-hmm. um i think we always need to to look into that in a separate episode i don't think it would be fair to ourselves or yeah. our listeners or the conditions no, no, to, to try and, and cram everything in in the one go so yeah we are looking very much at the the treatable end the the more common end and also what we see i think i'm right in saying that we're talking about the jaundice that appears in the first seven days of life so yes. that those kind of later those those more worrying underlying presentations typically appear later so we're talking about the ones that appear earlier. Am I right yeah. in saying that? Yeah. Although, I mean, like I said, with the breast milk jaundice, it does have a slightly later onset. Mm. I mean, they're, they're being monitored because there are concerns that it may be something more. Um, 
And I think it's just that ongoing monitoring, just making sure that things are staying mm. at the same level or slowly dropping off rather than slowly increasing. Yeah, I think probably the only thing to say about those more complex conditions is that um, all of the kind of guidance documents do say that whenever we've got jaundice in a breastfed newborn and it's prolonged beyond the third week um, or any newborn beyond the third week, um, you have to rule out coleostasis um, and you have yes. to look at other possible problems like congenital hypothyroidism. Um, you know, if it's going on beyond two months, they'd want to be looking at other syndromes, Gilbert syndrome um, and other yeah. very rare syndromes. So essentially, if it's very prolonged, then they're going to be want to be seen, as you say, in a prolonged jaundice clinic anyway. And hopefully that there's a clear pathway for that wherever you are. Yeah. And there normally is, isn't there? Um, exactly. But that's really for exactly. those ones that aren't resolving. But not every baby with an unresolved jaundice at that age is going to have an underlying problem some of them will just be what used to be called breast milk jaundice or prolonged jaundice um yeah that is just physiologically normal and will resolve yeah and doesn't really cause any problems we don't really know why it's there but it doesn't really seem to be causing a problem so exactly and i mean it is i mean pretty much all with all newborns have some you know compared to adult the Some values degree. have raised serum bilirubin um yeah which is kind of thing where you think well that's obvious given that they've been you know they've got yeah. all of their neonatal blood supply plus whatever came through the cord um and i know there have been a lot of talk about increasing levels of jaundice in babies since delayed cord clamping yeah came in as well hasn't yeah there? it's um it's something yeah that's and been, it makes sense on the rise yeah, completely, completely. Um, rather frustrating. And I think there was some talk of that being a reason not to do delayed cord clamping, which... Well, that's I what I was just about of... to say. We need to be careful that we're not giving the impression that, um, you know, that's a reason to avoid delayed cord clamping because it's not. No. Um, and obviously... And it... It's the, as you say, the, the jaundice that comes from inadequate intake... Um, and really exactly. it's where those factors are co-occurring so where you might have poor intake also co-occurring with these more physiological reasons for jaundice to be manifesting um, those yeah. things might put a baby at risk of having a more severe manifestation of jaundice so we, therefore we need to be more careful of um, their breastfeeding management yeah because it's like 80% of babies appear jaundiced in the first week, which I must own. I think a yeah. bit of me was surprised it was that high, but then I thought about it and was like, actually, yeah, you know what? When my friends have had babies, and yeah, you know, because you know, clients and things that I'm seeing now as an IBCLC, yeah, they've all got, yeah, they're all, <laughs> they're, they're all a bit on, my, on my intake form. I have a thing to write any issues that they've experienced, and most are ticking the jaundice box, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like you say, um, it's a it's a a normal condition to have elevated serum bilirubin relative to adults. Yeah. Absolutely normal. Um, and I think that's an important message for parents to hear as well because they can get concerned about that. But as soon as they hear that, you know, the majority of jaundice are babies are jaundiced in the first week or so, you know, that's a kind of reassuring thing for them as well. Um, yeah. So in terms of um the risk factors so there are some risk factors associated with and this is really significant hyperbilirubinemia now um yeah and they are to do with so there's a list on the nice guidance which i'm going to link to in this um episode but um decreased gestational age or preterm delivery low birth weight if jaundice develops in the first 24 hours of life it's a very early appearance of it um male but rather than female infants are higher risk if yeah. they've got visible bruising or a cephalohematoma yeah um, which we know about as a result of obviously the breakdown of the red blood cells um yeah. older mums so maternal age oh. 
Yeah. It actually says older than 25 years, which is pretty young. Um, but anyway. It, 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 I, I, know, I know it is that thing where I know every year we have the figures coming out, the data comes, shows mm. us that age of new mums is rising. Mm. But it still feels a bit harsh to be judged as old over 25. I know, literally. That's crazy, isn't it? Um, <laughs> mums who've had diabetes... Or who have right. diabetes. I think that's generally rather than gestational diabetes. Yeah. Um, Asian, European or Native American ethnicities. A sibling born oh. with jaundice who required phototherapy or other kind of treatment. Obviously, if they're dehydrated, if they've got poor caloric intake or increased neonatal weight loss um, yeah. and breastfeeding, we know about. So... Really, I mean, that is a long list. And what I wanted to point out is essentially there's going to be a lot of babies that would be... Yeah. If you were oh, assessing no, for risk, definitely. which it does say and is a sensible thing, thing to do as a health no, visitor to but... assess for risk, you'd be including everyone, really, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. But also, it's almost like a combination of those risk factors. It's a, it's. I can imagine it being almost an accumulative things so and so many of those things go together don't they yes they do um yeah, yeah. kind of if you're preterm um, you're more likely to be low worth weight you're more likely to have issues breastfeeding you're more likely to have you know therefore dehydration weight loss exactly. low calorie intake yeah exactly exactly i mean it's that thing where you know especially with the the low birth weight babies um mm. their bodies are put under the same pressure and they've got such little yeah. <laughs> to manage everything yeah. it's no wonder that they get a little bit absolutely a little bit yellow i remember with ellie that she got she was quite yellow she had kind of a bit of jaundice on about day three and things and it went quite quickly but because we didn't know what we were having and so i thought i would go lemon with a lot of the blankets and things and it's amazing how much less yellow a baby looks <laughs> once you've got a white sheet on the Moses basket instead of a yellow one it really helps like to reflecting you. on her skin that's so funny oh my word she looked practically like day a, glow. a minion oh bless you <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of reflection <laughs> i had um a really scary experience with jaundice with my little one as well, didn't I? And I didn't know whether to kind of talk about this as a example of, you know, absolutely what not to do. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it is a pretty good example of what not to do, really, in terms of how to manage jaundice in primary care um, and in secondary. In fact, just a bad way to manage jaundice, really. Um, but, yeah. yeah, we had the whole insufficient intake jaundice because struggled to establish breastfeeding but actually I didn't even know that we were struggling to establish breastfeeding at this stage um which I think you know as given my background like I thought she was feeding and she was feeding fine you know I yeah day one I thought she was feeding perfectly day two I thought she was feeding perfectly she was fussy she was a little bit fussy but not anything uh -huh. that you know, a bit of skin to skin resolved it immediately. And I just put her yeah. on the breast and went, oh, yeah, this is what they're supposed to do. You know, this is all normal yeah. and fine. Um, we had a bit of a bad night day two, the night of day two. But again, didn't really think much of that. Day three, yeah. the sun came up in the morning and she was day glow. <gasps> like fluorescent. And oh my word! I know, and but and then as day three went on, she was very sleepy, and I was like, no, no, this isn't okay. I'm worried now. I'm really worried. Um, yeah. And we'd already booked for a breastfeeding counselor to come out and see us, who was coming like first thing in the morning on day three, like nine a.m. or something. So she saw yeah. us, and she taught me to hand express colostrum, which I hadn't thought to do. Um, we did it on. I was going to say that was teaspoon. exactly where my brain was going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we hand expressed some colostrum onto a teaspoon and gave her that. Um, and then, but she was still really very, very sleepy 
um, and difficult right. to rouse, I would say. Um, so I called the midwives who said, oh, I'm sure she's fine, keep feeding, everything's fine. I called the birth centre who said, well, I'm sure she's fine, but if, you know, if you, she's really worried, then you can take her to A&E to have her, if you're really worried. Um, yeah. So I did take her to A&E. And they yeah. sent me home. They said, no, no, she's fine. Don't worry. Just keep feeding her. Everything will be fine. Oh. Nobody's weighed her at this point. Nobody tested right. her bilirubin at this point. But she looked bright yellow. Um, but even a weight, even doing a weight. Not even a weight. I can't believe A&E didn't do a weight. No, I mean, in, literally nothing. They literally day, everyone... And they categorised it on the admission thing because I saw on the computer what they'd put it on and they'd put it under worried parent instead of, you know, jaundice or feeding issue or anything more relevant. No. Um, And they actually said to me in A&E... The categories in A&E are really limited. Well, okay. they would have been unwell child I think I would have been looking at putting a bright yellow baby down as I've I felt very dismissed by them is what I would say and the nurse actually said to me in triage um but if she's hungry she'll feed and I said well not if she's Uh... jaundiced she won't and she said well no if she's really hungry she will feed and I was like, no, no, I literally can't wake her. To, I don't you don't understand. She's jaundiced, and I can't wake her to feed. And she said, no, no, she will feed if she's hungry. I oh, promise you. I know we you hear think... these horror stories of what people have been told, and we think that yeah. can't possibly be true. But I'm here telling you now that is what she said. Oh, no, I know, I know. Um, Out of interest, was it a separate children's A and E, or was it you were being? <gasps> Oh, my word, that is really not good. I hope you did a little pals letter. I did, I did. Um, So I then went, so I was then in tears after this because I knew full well from my peds, like, knowledge that this is not okay and she needs help and I need help urgently. And I've now spent most of the day trying to get some milk into her and trying to get some help and I was really drawing and empty. So I literally walked into the birth centre where we'd had her in tears with this yellow floppy newborn and went help me and they put her on the scales and just realized that she'd lost almost 14 percent of her birth weight and this is only day three yeah so she was then admitted immediately and but even then they didn't get me a pump it took them about 10 hours to get me a pump and i was like begging for it um I think it, I can almost feel my boots aching in sympathy for yeah, you. Yeah, it was all, It was really awful. And, you oh. know, the whole thing was just so traumatic. And then they said, oh, we're not going to start phototherapy. And then they said, oh, no, we are. And then once they'd started it, they wouldn't let me hold her or pick her up at all, even to breastfeed her. So I wasn't allowed to try putting her to the breast at all. I was literally what? only because they said it took too long. And that she wasn't allowed to be out of the light for that long. I know. And they didn't have a billy blanket for you to use to do skin to skin and phototherapy. No. no. And as we'll see when we come on to the NICE guidance, it literally says that that is not a reason not to do, um, no. not to well, not to breastfeed. I think so. You know how we often that. have those little stings in the middle of the yeah. podcast. <laughs> I think now is a good time for a sting. Yeah. And if you're listening to the podcast, and especially if you're looking at using this as yeah. an example for CPD, have a moment, get pen and paper or notes up on your phone. Yeah. And have a reflection on if you were the health visitor who met Amy, um, what actions would you be taking? What would your plan be? Okay, so if you paused the podcast, welcome back. <laughs> if you've not paused the podcast... You're thinking, sneaky. just get on with it, woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sneaky. So, you know, we, we will, uh, we, we'll be looking carefully if you put anything in for CPD about how closely you're... Uh, if everything exactly matches up with what we say now. <laughs> word for just word. straight through. Um <laughs> So let's think about first things first. Let's think about um, assessment. Mm-hmm. 
And I think there's quite a bit in the uh, the NICE guidelines there and is. the um, the ABM, the American Breastfeeding Medicine Protocols, yeah. about assessment, isn't there? There is. Um, I mean, broadly, you're looking for natural light blanching the skin um, on the forehead or the chest um, and then looking at the gums, the palate and the sclera, the whites of the eyes. Um, typically jaundice progresses head downwards so it is true that thing that you see the yellow merging in their eyes first and then across the rest of their body so if you're seeing it all the way down at their toes then you're seeing a more advanced you know in terms of time a more advanced a more further forwards um jaundice picture than if it's just in their eyes and And then it disappears in the opposite direction yes I was going to say, you beat me to it. I was just about to say it it goes up the other way. So you could have it where a family are telling you about how the baby's legs were really yellow the day before and now they're not so yellow. And that's a really good sign. But it does mean that the whites of the eyes are often one of the last places to go. Um, And on the NICE guidelines, or is it in the NICE guidelines or is it elsewhere that we have to look for the advice around... um, other ethnicities and the sort of so, black and Asian skin and looking for um, for signs of yeah. there with them. So essentially, in that scenario, with a darker skin tone, you're looking at the sclera. That is a really useful yeah. indication. And as we say, that's the first and last thing. Um, so it's not going to give you much of an indication of how advanced the jaundice is. Um, but if they do say to have a, a lower threshold for referral... Because the danger is that you think they don't look that bad, but in actual fact, it's quite a severe jaundice. And the other thing that we look at in terms of um, knowing what to do, the assessment wise, is the um, NICE guidance have a really useful summary. Um, But before I say about that, there is an app which is being piloted at the moment is it using the smartphone? Yeah, it's yeah. using a smartphone to um, identify um, jaundice in darker skin tones to, to, to kind of make yeah. that more objective and more accurate, um, which I think is uh-huh. so badly needed. Um, and they use something called ambient subtracted sclera chromaticity. So it's taking a photo of the baby's eyes and looking at wow. and skin pigmentation. And they look at an illuminating flash via the Uh smartphone screen. Blimey. And is this for professionals to use or are they suggesting that parents could use this? I'm not sure what the plan is in terms of that, in fairness. It's the only thing Um, I'm thinking This is, is, I think, quite an early stage. Yeah. It's promising, I I I wonder how easy it is to take a flash picture of a baby's eyes with their eyes open in the yeah, early days so, yeah good question yeah it's an app um and that i mean they're testing it so this is a pilot yeah. study and i'll um stick the reference in it's a small numbers only 37 num- children um so it's just a pilot study at this stage and i guess you know those things would need to be ironed out if they are an issue um but in a really interesting and important development and also the argument is that this could be easily used in um less economically developed areas as well yes yeah no it i mean i fingers crossed because that would be amazing be wonderful um and yeah, and I think any link up or interest in these sorts of things, because as you said, it's that universality where it can be used anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, it's that thing where much as we grumble at times about our NHS, we are so, so fortunate yeah. that, you know, from the Highlands all the way down to sort of Cornwall and everywhere in between, we have access to and even if it means traveling a little way we we have it there um we have access to it for yeah. free and um, really that brings me very neatly on to the management of inter not in terms of what you would do from your assessment so the assessment of severity and the nice guidance yeah. has got a really useful i actually really quite like it um uh, they're often a bit vague, but this one is actually quite helpful. Um, and it talks about 
arranging ad emergency admission via 999 ambulance if there is jaundice with features of bilirubin encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Yeah, that's what we're going with. Um, and they are saying those features, so jaundice with features like this, atypical sleepiness, poor feeding, irritability, vomiting, hypotonia, followed by hypertonia. So obviously, if you were seeing fluctuations in tone like that, you know, then you'd obviously yeah. be very alarmed um, and vomiting probably. But I mean, if you were seeing irritability, poor feeding and atypical sleepiness, that is 999 ambulance, according to NICE yeah. guidance. Um, and then urgent admission to a neonatal or paediatric unit within two hours if the jaundice first appears at less than 24 hours of age. So that's probably before we're typically involved. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's it. Or it, it's interesting how they talk about, you know, admission to a unit like that within two hours. Because actually, this is where have it, this is where children's A&E should really come into it. Mm -hmm. Because it's that thing where for a ward to have space to take on a baby who's going to need quite intensive care and support so quickly may not be possible. Mm. But then... In a, the A&E department, they do have facilities to have that initial treatment, initial assessment and things. Um, it's interesting how guys often, it's often seen that, oh, you know, the gold standard would be to go into hospital and go straight to a children's ward. Actually, yeah. I think I, I would be really stressed by that more so than um, than being in A&E because I just wor would worry so much that it would take a lot longer to get everything set up and established. Yeah, possibly. I mean, this is saying it's essentially urgent admission to a neonatal or paediatric unit, depending on local arrangements, as soon as possible. Yeah. And to be seen within six hours using clinical judgment regarding more urgent referral admission if it first appears at more than seven days of age. So if they're eight days of age or older when it appears, uh -huh. then they need an urgent admission to be seen within six hours. Yeah. If they're unwell. Yeah, I think it's that thing of, with it. if they're, I mean, like we said, with the, um, with the jaundice that I've forgotten the name of, <laughs> with the, what they call the breast milk jaundice, that appears later, but is much milder. So it's that thing, if they're kind of literally, you know, showing those signs of being sleepy, lethargic, very yellow, then that is definitely emergency and... Yeah, yeah, so the interaction very quickly. Yeah, so the emergency 999 ambulance is jaundice with sleepy, poor feeding, irritability, vomiting, hypertonia, followed by hypertonia. And then yeah. you've got urgent admission within two hours if it first appears less than 24 hours of age. So if they're new, like within, if they're less than 24 hours old, they need to be seen within two hours. Then the next one is urgent admission to be seen within six hours if the jaundice appears at more than seven days of age, if the neonate is unwell, for example, lethargy, fever, vomiting, irritability, if they have a gestational age of less than 35 weeks, if prolonged jaundice is suspected, so that's a gestational age of less than 37 weeks with more than 21 days of jaundice, or if they were full term, with more than 14 days of jaundice. Um, if there are feeding problems or concerns about weight, particularly in breastfed infants, or if they've got pale stools and dark urine. And then for all others, so they're the ones that you would want to be admitted, which is actually quite a lot of them, I think. Yeah, but then... And it's that thing where the difference is in practice. I think it wouldn't be urgent admission. It would be urgent referral to A&E to be assessed. Um, yeah, but I mean, this is saying urgent admission. This is what I'm, this is the point I'm making, I suppose, with this, is that I don't think the NICE guidance match what is being done. Yeah, no. No, I don't think that there is capacity no. for that to be done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and exactly. if you think about it in practice, it is that thing where a lot of places have um, the sort of prolonged jaundice clinics. 
And for a lot of these guys, it would be attending a paediatric A&E, um, which, I mean, well, I know after your experience, I can imagine if there's been many others who have had similar experiences, there'd be a definite degree of wariness in doing that. Um, but I must, I have to say in my time in A&E, um, there definitely would have been any sort of hint of, uh, not getting you the urgent care and attention that you were really obviously needing. Yeah, um, it's um, worrying that. But I mean, I suppose it doesn't match is what I'm saying. It doesn't match my experience, but I, it, I don't yeah. just mean my personal experience. I mean my no, professional experience no, exactly. as well. I don't think every baby who has jaundice um, and feeding problems is seen within yeah. six hours of that jaundice emerging. No. I don't think that And I think happens. this is where Yeah, and I think this is where the issue occurs because I think especially when there are feeding problems and it goes back to our our um podcast we did on um top ups is yeah. that for so often um yeah, feeding problems there's always then a full stop and straight into supplementing with formula yeah. rather than reviewing what what is the feeding problem? Where is the issue? Absolutely. Um, I want to get on I mean, to that because a... I think that's really what you're saying is so important. I just want to finish yeah. this section. So it's got those different pathways for urgent admission and emergency admission. Then it says for all other jaundiced neonates, so if they're not meeting any of those criteria, you're supposed to be yeah. getting a transcutaneous or a serum bilirubin within six hours. So the first protocol is to try and get a transcutaneous bilirubin in primary care. But yeah. for health visitors, I don't know about you, but I've never worked in a in a trust where we have access to transcutaneous bilirubin monitors. No. Sometimes no, the midwives do, but I've never seen it no. as health visitors. Um, so if you're seeing yeah. a jaundiced neonate, um, which they've been jaundiced, you know, for a while... And by the time you're seeing them, because if it's appearing late, then you'll be referring them to A&E anyway. But if they're, if it's been, they've been referred for a while, you still should be getting a transcutaneous bilirubin measurement. Um, yeah. It says do not and rely think, on visual assessment of jaundice to guide no, management. But I think I think this is where the joined up working really um, could be better, because I know in my professional experience, when I've seen babies meeting that criteria they are still under the midwifery team who are then doing those, um, mm. the, the T, TCBs. Um, but yeah. there's a lack of information sharing. So yes, we're yeah. not, you know, very occasionally you might find something jotted in the red book, but we're not party to that information. No. But at the same time, I can completely see how in the division of labour, mm. I think that, doing tcbs is definitely more of a midwifery sure because they have that pathway going back although obviously quite often you get guys who their community midwives are different to the hospital that they've been under and things for labor so there is this disjointedness yeah you're so right this is really highlighting the issue that we have in practice around actually if you see a baby who is jaundiced the nice guidance is that you should not be relying on a visual assessment of jaundice to guide your management of that baby so you shouldn't be doing this whole look at the baby mm, they don't look that yellow I think you know we'll probably be okay we shouldn't be doing that we should be going by either a serum bilirubin or a transcutaneous bilirubin. Yeah. So if we haven't got access to one of those things, we need to be thinking about how do we get access to, so do we need to get the baby tested or do we have a more, do we have a recent transcutaneous that we could go by with the midwifery team, for example? Have they been seen yeah. that day or the day before recently enough to, to rely on? Um, and really, how do we manage actually implementing these guidance in our practice in a practical way you know yeah um I think it's it's quite um tricky to be honest this one yeah no definitely definitely it's something which occurred a lot when I was in practice in London mm. um whereby you know we often have babies born out of borough and then coming into the mm. borough and so having yeah. different midwives who they would then have to be referred to the local hospital 
or return to the hospital of birth because for some guys they were actually closer to the out of borough hospital than they were to the the, the borough hospital as it yeah. were um and um but yeah i mean i think it's i don't think i've ever seen a case which the midwives weren't already following up and parent parents would report they were still being seen and things but what I do find this ongoing thing is this lack of linked upness with records and notes. Yeah. Um, one thing I think is definitely missing in practice as well is the support around feeding. So that's what we're going to come to now, really, in terms of the management, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. management then so let's talk about we've got a baby we've definitely know there's jaundice is a problem for this family um yeah how is this going to be managed yeah yeah um and so yeah obviously if they're you know, really sleepy if weight loss is over 10 percent um or i would say even if combination or yeah you know, i think sometimes even if the weight loss is a little bit Un, you know less than 10 percent mm. if you're worried then get that second opinion mm. you know it's it no one having done 11 odd years in children's a and e i can guarantee no one ever said oh for goodness sake what on earth were yeah. was the health minister doing sending in this baby who's not feeding effectively who's evidently lost weight whose parents are really stressed and things mm-hmm. because obviously they have that longer period of time to ensure um feeding takes place and it's frustrating because I know that there wouldn't be there won't be a fantastic feeding review done in A&E no um which would be the absolute dream you know the absolute ideal would be to go to A&E have an IBCRC or infant feeding team be able to come in see these families review them yeah that's my dream job um if any any A&E departments are listening, um, especially if you're based in the North Essex, Suffolk area, <laughs> let me know. You know. This is quickly turning into a LinkedIn pitch, Jen. Yeah. Um, but oh my but God, you would be if awesome they're at, If they're at that point where they're maybe not needing A&E, then what do you need to do? And I think it's really good to signpost to our Top Ups episode because Definitely. I think so much of the management um, we covered in that episode. Absolutely. And it's thinking about, you know, and some guys, yes, there is going to be a need for formula. Mm-hmm. You know, formula as a medical intervention is so necessary. This is the times. place for it, you know. If, yeah, if and can actually, yeah. and, and it's that thing of looking at formula as something to support and continue breastfeeding yeah not to take over yeah um other things are those things of you know things like um looking at hand expressing you know so many parents so many parents think about hand expressing from the point of view of colostrum harvesting Mm -hmm. and don't realize it's something they can continue to do once baby is there there's always a fear about it being it taking milk away from baby Mm -hmm. when if anything the very opposite is true it can actually help to promote milk and even looking at you know if baby's quite sleepy even looking at giving a mill or so of milk extra you know a bit of um yeah, mil, five mils, ten mils of milk extra. You can get it, yeah. Yeah, is so helpful. And also, you know, the thing is, if baby is really sleepy and isn't feeding effectively and hasn't been gaining weight, mm-hmm. then those breasts have not been stimulated. They're not going to be keeping Producing up with the rate as quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So want to even consider encouraging these parents to uh, to express and I would often, I would always err towards encouraging, rather than encouraging them to buy a, a breast pump or even borrow a breast pump, if they're able to, if there is support locally to, to get their hands on a hospital grade electric pump. Yeah. Um, these can be rented for, I mean, even as little as like, with, with the bottles as well, £50 a month, mm-hmm. which when you compare that to the cost of the LV, which so many people go on about, I mean, the cost of the LV is equivalent to about five months hospital-grade pump rental. It's just ridiculous. It's like to completely out of reach for most people, isn't it? 
completely completely um, and a lot of places um do have sorry for for families that are on low income or maybe don't yeah. have the facility to be able to but but to sorry to rent even the 50 pounds a month um exactly a lot of places do have as part of the infant feeding team a hospital grade breast pump available that you can yes. access yeah. so it's worth a um, phone call to your feeding team to find out if definitely. that's a possibility and if your family is um if the family you're supporting is twins or multiples mm-hmm. um then um the breastfeeding twins and triplets um group on facebook which is also a charity that's run by a friend of the podcast Catherine yeah. Stag they She's... have a discount code that you can use if you're parent of twin or multiple mm-hmm. and you can find out from that via the group and so that again brings the cost down a bit makes it more achievable yeah so there are um, some lines of for, but but expressing kind of early in this sort of situation is good we don't always advise to express early do we no, but in no. this scenario it's quite the most likely situation is that the baby isn't getting enough milk at the breast. Yeah. So we need to increase the amount of milk that baby is taking. So number one, feed the baby. And obviously your first thing is going to be with mum's own milk to begin with, as you said. So hand expressing, yeah. small yeah. amounts. If you can get hold of donor milk, then that's your second best option. Yeah. And then your final um, option is um, formula. And the NICE yeah. guidance actually does say that first first line mother's milk then donor then small volumes and it actually stipulates 10 to 15 mils of formula delivered by a spoon cup syringe or sns so supplemental yeah. nursing system after a feed yeah only and that's in the ex- thing as well sorry so no i was going to say the teaspoon idea is brilliant because yes, it really works well it's very rare you're in a house where they don't have a teaspoon yeah yeah yeah, yeah syringes cups sns's are all a lot of extra faff yeah but actually encourage them and you can use the teaspoon similar to the way you do the cup feeding having the spoon level with baby's lip and almost encouraging to lap at it yeah and and the other great thing about a teaspoon is the volumes that you're delivering are going to be more appropriate where actually 10 yeah. 15 mils of formula in a bottle looks like such a small amount that almost nobody's going to be doing that and nobody's yeah. going to be mixing up 10 mils of formula. like that's just not the powder just you no. can't mix it in that way so um it it's just that, doesn't lend yeah. itself to small volumes no. easily it, it's that thing as well where for families like this i would often suggest that they look to using the ready-made cartons mm. especially if it's looking at being a short-term yeah thing um it's that thing where if anything happens they end up going into longer-term combi feeding then yeah buy then the powder have to transition but, them yeah yeah but from the point of view although i know there is a lot of um yeah the ecological impact of the cartons is huge mm. at this point in time when they're looking at having really small volumes mm. it's actually less wasteful to mm. use the carton mm. because one carton could be enough for a good 24 hours um, yeah and you can open it and store it, can you, in the fridge? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, right. you can, yeah, they're right, they've because they've been ultra heat treated. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. Similar to similar to what you do with cartons of juice. Yeah. Um, they store and they're clearly. You know, I think you can store them for twenty four hours. Yeah. Um, and so you can just literally take what you need. Yeah. So it's really encouraging those small volumes frequently. And then if they're wanting more milk, so back to the breast again, and obviously trying to really support if this is all obviously if the parent wants to breastfeed. I mean, we're starting from the assumption that this is a breastfeeding dyad and that the mum actually wants to continue the breastfeeding obviously if the mum's saying to you they don't want to continue the breastfeeding that's an entirely different conversation and obviously your your advice is going to be totally totally different but if you're wanting to help that mum and give her the best chance of being able to continue breastfeeding in the long term something like jaundice can be a real spanner in the works to their journey yeah, and it can definitely. actually be the stone on the road that ends up bumping them off down an entirely different yeah. path that is actually quite difficult to come back from so your role as the health visitor for that family there is helping them to achieve their goal in terms of trying to help them to give them the information and support to get around that stone 
and manage that while still maintaining their ultimate goal of yeah. feeding in the way they want to feed exactly. so exactly um, i mean i think when we think about it i think if i remember correctly top reason that parent that that parents stop breastfeeding is pain yeah and i'm pretty sure second is things like jaundice slow perceived, weight gain perceived low supply is up there yeah. high high yeah. on the list and all of that is also feeding in here and that's something i would mention as being really important maybe a little bit further down the line your initial management is going to be about feeding the baby but also you know you're expressing in all of those things it's not only to get the milk to feed the baby with but it's also to protect the mum's supply and then yeah. you're going to be working on whatever the problem is with that feeding dyad that has meant that they're not able to transfer the milk they need to and hopefully also working on psychologically with the parent to know that exactly um, you know their breasts or chest are able to deliver the milk the baby needs and that they will be able to sustain the baby in the long term if that's what they want to do um it's that kind of confidence in their own body that i think can be really undermined by this yeah. type of process and even if babies are needing to go in um, to hospital to have phototherapy yeah um stopping phototherapy for breastfeeding is a completely valid yeah sorry yes yes sorry it should you should never not be allowed that's what yeah sorry that's what you said yeah, <laughs> yeah. i get you i get you yeah. <laughs> i mean hopefully i think more and more places now have the the billy blankets don't they that they can even Apparently. have on them yeah so they can have photos if you're not seen i've seen pictures, I've seen of, them pictures of them but when obviously we went in it wasn't it was very much the traditional kind of bare bassinet thing with her naked like a little skunk with her eye mask you know lying there bless her and me being like (laughs) 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 and and not being allowed to pick her up I think was I was really really hard it was really horrible for somebody who's planning to parent in a very attachment way and who's spent the first three days of their life with them literally skin to skin almost 24 hours you know um yeah to then say to them put them down in that bassinet and don't pick them up for the next 16 hours or whatever you know is is just is just heartbreaking really well it's Um, just the idea of no human contact for 16 hours you're just like no yeah exactly and it actually says in the nice guidance explicitly interruption for breastfeeding up to 30 minutes or more is not a problem so yeah. you know literally this is this is the guidance i would say is very different from certainly my experience and also when i see in practice the experience of lots of families i come across you know yeah. um it also says only in extreme rare circumstances where phototherapy is unavailable or very severe clinical dehydration and hyponatremia should you give large volumes of formula Mm-hmm. and bottles or teats are to be avoided so your first course of action absolutely should never be oh we have a jaundice baby here's 60 mils of formula in a bottle yeah that absolutely is not what we should be doing unless we've got really really serious evidence of hyponatremia and we've got no phototherapy available to help this baby process that bilirubin if we've got phototherapy available we should be doing phototherapy and we should be supporting breastfeeding um and trying to top up with mother's own milk while supporting mum to express and supporting the dyad to resolve whatever the breastfeeding issue is that has led to the the um inadequate transfer of milk in the first place um Whistle stop tour. The top up episode is much better in terms of the actual detail that to get into the actual how to top up and what to top up with. Yeah. And how to transition out of top ups again. You know, yes. we've we've covered yeah, that really that's quite the well. Thing in as that well. Yeah. It's um it's something which I'm still encountering families I'm seeing mm. where they've been advised to top up mm. and been I parents who've been advised to top up and they're like, Well, how much and how often? And they're like, Well, yeah sort of you know 30 mils yeah let's feed. follow what it says well, on the box for, for how yeah. long do we need to do that um and and then yeah. you know with the pumping well how often should i pump and they're like well no. once twice a day oh, you know? yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. no no firm plan being made or offered and also often i think um as clinicians once the immediate risk 
has gone. So the baby is not sleepy anymore. They're not drowsy. There's no more kind of severe jaundice or the jaundice is clearly improving. Um, it's easy to step back and say, ah, right, well, the problem here is solved. Um, yeah. But if the parent doesn't want to be mixed feeding, they want to be exclusively breastfeeding, and the parent is still giving top-ups, the problem has not gone because all that's going to happen is that the baby is going to be fine and cope well on the, the trajectory that they're on, but the parent could easily be left with some quite big feelings around guilt and... yeah disappointment with their feeding journey so you need to be supporting them then to kind of achieve what they want to achieve which also obviously you know if that's what if exclusive breastfeeding is what they want to do then we know that that's also the best thing for the baby so you know um it's that continuation of that support until that you're they're saying to you actually we're happy with how things are going now And is there anything else from sort of internationally for us to consider with Dawn <laughs> Do you know, it's almost like you've read my notes, Jan. There it is. Um, so when I was researching for this episode, I found some really interesting stuff. So clearly, um, as we talked about, um, different ethnicities have different levels of jaundice and there's a risk factor in terms of ethnicity. Um, and there is a lot we can learn from... Japan, for example, so they have some really interesting policies and practices around jaundice. Um, oh, right. Yeah, so they all have transcutaneous bilirubin measurement as part of routine care. Wow. So um, we don't really have that in the UK. I think some midwifery departments have it, but not. I've never worked in a health visiting department that has it, and actually... The NICE guidance, it really emphasises that you can't judge severity visually. So if, you've, if you're if you needing um, an assessment of levels, if you've got a diagnosis and you need an assessment of levels within six hours, which you usually do according to their guidance, then you're going to have to send them to hospital to get a serum measure. Um, but yeah. actually, if we had the TCB, the transcutaneous bilirubin measures, um, at primary care level... Um, we could uh-huh. do that at the GP or we could do it at, you know, the health visitor could do that, you know, and then it would save them having to go into A&E. And because that can often be a long wait in A&E. Yeah, well, exactly. And and also, you know, if you know that you're going to be able to support them in terms of the feeding and what you're looking for is a TCB to know whether they need phototherapy or not, okay, if you can do the TCB, you might be able to manage them without them having to go through the phototherapy and without yeah. them having to be admitted to hospital. Um, which, you know, admission to hospital has its own whole host of concerns and worries for people. Um, Definitely. So, yeah. I think um, the other thing that I saw that was really interesting, and I remember reading about this as a children's nurse when I was doing my child nursing training, Jen. I did a... Um, I know. I did a literature review on this because we had to pick a topic for a literature review and this is the topic I picked. So I was really interested to see how the literature has evolved since then, sort of like 10 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and it was about massage, infant massage, as an adjunct to phototherapy in infants with jaundice. Oh, right. So, yeah, so there was a systematic review that was actually published last year about this. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and it was saying that essentially um, if you combine um, massage and phototherapy, particularly for neonates who are needing phototherapy in the third and fourth days of life, it's more effective than just doing phototherapy alone. Oh, wow. So the, the... the so initially this started out as being suggested as a strategy for um very low to moderate levels of jaundice it wasn't suggested for infants that were requiring phototherapy it was suggested for those kind of home management things um but actually yeah. um they're saying now that this can be done alongside phototherapy Um, And that actually it's more effective, especially in that first week of life. It says the effect, they found the effect became insignificant by the 14th day of life. So by the time they're two weeks old, um, 
it's less effective and at that stage enemas then might be more useful because you're obviously oh, helping blimey. them to, i know yeah well yeah yeah um so but i mean hopefully that's not needed for some for most babies um by the no. by the 14 day point it really really i think it's a really useful discovery that well, massage it's, is it's helpful. that thing where yeah i can kind of completely understand how that's useful and just begs mm-hmm. the question of thinking why haven't we heard about this before well um, i think well it has been this is the thing in a lot of asian countries it's actually traditional practice so very very common in japan for example and that's why i mention it um you know bangladesh also they have um a a lot of massage as common practice for newborns for lots of different reasons Um, and it's one of those things where i think they have been studying it um all around the world and but really it's just kind of trickling down to us kind of weird societies over here Um, and we're finally realizing that we can actually learn something um from these traditional practices in different parts of the world so um and i i'm just thinking you, you just said about weird and i know that's an acronym and i can never remember what the full oh. date of acronym was <laughs> you're so it might be now. worth specifying that that is an acronym we're not saying families over here are weird oh it's yeah western... <laughs> western it stands for western um educated industrialized what's the r uh, rich democratic democracies yeah yeah that's it so it's it's yeah it's an acronym yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah so it's um a really interesting intervention i think that has some really important implications really um Definitely. because actually you know if you've got a baby in the first week of life it doesn't have to be anything hugely complicated what you're looking at is essentially skin to skin you know and we've we've we know a lot about skin to skin and how important it is for regulating all sorts of homeostatic body systems um and also you know massage in terms of on the infant's stomach might be stimulating um gastric um activity that might be one mechanism for how it's done there's also some suggestion that involvement of the vagus nerve might be relevant um in the mechanism of how it works but it doesn't have to be anything hugely complicated or difficult it's very easy to do at home it doesn't require anything expensive or and it, yeah, it's no. a very low intensity intervention the newborns normally enjoy it it's not something that's yeah. you know invasive or unpleasant there's no, no negative side effects that we know about so really that's an important thing to know isn't it you know yeah it's amazing <laughs> yeah if that's, if, if that's going to help there's no palm in it so that's a win yeah really as an adjunct and very different from you know put your newborn in a basin and ignore them for 16 hours well yeah exactly actually what we should be doing is get them out to breastfeed as much as you like and um massage them and it's that thing where your natural in your natural instinct is going to be to want to touch and things yeah and it's interesting how it all feeds into what your natural instincts are. And, well, lo and behold, who yeah. would have guessed? Almost like natural your natural instincts. instincts are evolved to work. Yeah. 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 Adaptive. Wow. Anyway, so that was some interesting things that I found out from Japan. Um, so have we got any kind of key messages to end on? Supporting feeding. So I think key messages, as often, are you know, supporting feeding. Um, just being aware of the different types of jaundice yeah that yeah not all jaundice is just the one type yeah and that you know if you've got a baby who's yellow but appearing well and feeding well then the chances are that things are going well and that you know to reassure that it's actually a relatively normal physiological thing that happens yeah so basically the vast majority is going to be about increasing the intake supporting the feeding um and helping them to kind of get through this natural stage um yeah and, but being mindful of those warning signs um and, and using phototherapy if we need to signpost to that yeah hopefully that's a helpful summary for people if you feel like we've missed anything or you've got any extra questions that we think we don't think we've covered um then get in touch and how can they get in touch with us jenny 
Well, they can get in touch with us in a variety of ways. <laughs> uh, we've got our email address, I am a health visitor, all one word, at gmail.com, or via our Facebook page. Um, well, sort of, I don't know quite where the inspiration for our Facebook page came from, but it, it's called um, I am a health visitor. <laughs> uh, or Inspired. even our. It, Exactly, exactly. I just thought I'd go a bit left field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I am a health visitor. Um, and then there's our Instagram page where I did abbreviate um, at I am a HV on uh, Instagram. And Twitter, I am a HV as well. Oh, and I'm Twitter told. as well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of those many obscure methods. And also, um, a lot of the platforms are in, obviously, iTunes is the main one, or SoundCloud, but you can you can rate us, you can subscribe to us, and you can leave reviews, which we're always yeah. very happy to see. You can talk about us in the office. Yeah. yeah. I have noticed there's been a flurry of uh, new followers on Instagram I love the last flurry. few weeks. Yeah. Um, it's the October, it's November like, Where flurry, are we now? We're... We're recording this first week in November, mm-hmm. so um, I'm guessing it's possibly some new um, yeah. health visiting students. So hello to you if you're new followers and hello. things. Um, let us know how it's going. And also, obviously, I should remember um, to remind you that if you'd like us to give you a certificate for CPD that you've done yes. after listening to an episode of this, mm-hmm. then um, send us details. Um, if you, you can send us... Um, the template from the NMC website of um, documenting reflection. Yeah, that's the one. And then we can send you a certificate back um, confirming that for you. Yeah, we love doing that. Exactly. And we love hearing from you. So thanks everyone for all your lovely emails and keep them coming. Yes. Um, It'd be lovely if you all did want to email in, it would be lovely to do like an email edition at some point. Um, we have had we have had a few lovely emails from guys um and also if you yeah there's something going on that you want to tell us about in your trust then give us a shout um that feels like a christmas we love talking episode like a christmas celebration if you have something that you'd like to share with us on a christmas episode to kind of boost everyone's morale and you know yeah a bit of happiness or or even a bit of misery and you want to rant no 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 you know you know what we need to do is a christmas special what and i think we need to do a shout out for this we'd like your funniest oh yeah visiting (laughs) stories let's do yes please funny health visiting story episode and what you can do is you can even if you record your story as a voice note and email it to us yes oh my god how awesome first, that first names only we don't need to know whereabouts you work or anything no no um obviously oh, yeah protect client confidentiality well. but i reckon we could get some gems oh yeah and it'd just be really nice to do a really funny episode for christmas and into the new year that'd be brilliant <laughs> what a great idea jen please send us your oh. stories i'd love that definitely do it (laughs) okay well hopefully we'll hear from you all soon all right take care bye guys bye Bye. for now bye